Redemption City, I am excited to be here, and I'm so glad that you are here today. Uh, like Pastor Mike mentioned, uh, my name is Sebastian. Uh, I am a seminary student at GRTS, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, and I, I have the, privileges, or the privilege to share God's Word with you this morning. So if you have uh, been here with us, uh, I see a couple of new faces. I just want to say welcome. Feel welcome to our church, and I'm glad that you're here. If you haven't been here, we have been going through the gospel according to Mark. We have been going through the series titled, Amazed by Jesus. So if you haven't been here, just I'm going to do a recap for us, because it's been a little while since we've covered or since we've been in the gospel of Mark. One thing that we have seen is how Mark intentionally points us to be able to see the actions of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus and what he has been doing. And over and over again, it's been interesting because we get to see how some people react to Jesus. Some people begin to wonder and they're curious and from afar they're watching, they're, they're, they're trying to learn what, who Jesus is and what he is doing. Others completely oppose him. They just reject Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. And then you have other people who cannot help, but they just are in awe. They are amazed by Jesus, by his teachings, by by who he is, by what he is doing. And this is why we title our series Amazed by Jesus. So to refresh our memory, if you start reading uh, the gospel according to Mark, you'll be able to see uh, from the beginning, you're going to be able to see the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. This is where uh, we see God actually confirming the identity of who Jesus is. We also get to see uh, that the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness where he's going to be tempted by Satan. And in a very Jesus way, he puts Satan in his place. We also get to see how Jesus begins to call his disciples. Not only that, but we get to see how Jesus begins his public ministry now, where he begins to perform many uh, miracles. He begins to heal people, and people are just amazed. They, they have never seen somebody that is doing such things as that, healing people and speaking with authority. And we also see Jesus, uh, he begins to teach in parables, which for many people, that just leaves them like, what? what? What did you mean? Like, I don't understand this. And for others, it was just simple. Ah, yeah, I get it. I'm in. Awesome. We're in. So Jesus begins to teach about the kingdom of God about the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand to believe and repent. So before we dive into our passage this morning, I just want to say to you that my hope is that you will be challenged by God's word today. Because this passage is heavy. A.W. Tozer says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And this is so true. So this morning, not only do I want you to keep that in mind, but I want you to consider the most important question that you will ever face and will have to give answer to. If we're able to recognize Jesus this morning for who he is, then we're going to be faced with this question. And that is, are you willing to follow Christ? Are you willing to deny yourself and follow Christ? Are you willing to suffer and follow Christ? Are you willing 
to be rejected and follow Christ? Are you willing to put your life on the line and follow Christ? This is the question that we're going to be faced with this morning. We're going to get to see what it looks like to surrender your life for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel. And I hope my my aim with this sermon is just that we would be able to do that, to surrender our lives as we take up our cross and follow Jesus and follow Christ. So before we dive into the passage and the story, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful this morning because you have made this day for us to gather together and rejoice. We're thankful for your goodness and your mercy and your grace and faithfulness towards us. And with humble hearts, we come to you asking that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to be able to hear and see what you have prepared for us today. I pray that my words would be few so that your words would be loud and clear for us this morning, that your word would penetrate our hearts and uh, take root in our hearts. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, we get to dive into the story. What is happening here in this passage? This is a loaded passage. So, before we dive into the actual passage of this morning, I have to go back a couple of verses. Because in order to understand the whole story, we need to understand what is happening, the context. In a few verses prior to our passage, we get to see that Peter actually confesses for the very first time that Jesus is the Christ. If we go back to verse 27, it says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. He got it. He got it, right? Yes. So we see now Jesus is confronting Peter by asking him, well, who do you say that I am? And for the very first time, keep in mind, before only God and the demons were able to identify Jesus for who he is. And this is the first time that now we get to see a person to say, you are the Christ. If we go to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4, we get to see a little more details as to why Peter was able to identify Jesus as the Christ. And it wasn't because he was so smart or so much better than the others, the other disciples. It was simply because the Father who is in heaven revealed that to him. This is what Jesus is saying, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In our passage, we're going to get to see that Jesus takes an unexpected turn in verse 31. And he begins to, get this, predict his death and his resurrection. But to understand this a little more, like, fuller, in a fuller way, we have to consider what did that mean for Peter to say, you are the Christ, to recognize Jesus as the Christ. If we put on our, our lenses from the context of Peter, we're going to be able to see that for Peter, it mainly meant three big things. 
that he's taken uh, promises from the Old Testament that are going to be fulfilled in Christ. And what's in his mind are these three things. He says that for Jesus to be the Christ means that Jesus himself is the true prophet. That means that Jesus is the personification of the word of God, that he's speaking the very words of God, which are absolutely true and absolutely certain. We also see the second point. It means that Jesus was the true great high priest, the one that would finally be the perfect representative between God and the people of Israel that would intercede for them. And number three, it meant that Jesus, and I I think this is the big one here. I think that Jesus, uh, for Peter to say Jesus is the Christ, meant that Jesus is the true king. Peter knew that the true king would be the one who would come and overthrow all the oppressive powers. I mean, just think of the oppression that the people of Israel were under, under the empire of Rome. They were oppressed for hundreds of years. The declaration that Jesus is king meant that Israel would finally be free from all that oppression and that the king would finally reclaim all power and authority and would put the people of Israel in their rightful place as God's chosen people. This is what is in Peter's mind. You see, the people from the Old Testament, they waited for the one who would come to lead them into victory. They were waiting for the one that would lead them out of this political bondage that they were under from the empire of Rome to be free from all this oppression. And this is exactly what is going on in Peter's mind. So for him, he's saying, hey, well, goodbye, Pharisees. We have the very word of God. We have our true prophet now. No more will we be unable to approach God because now we have our great high priest. And don't even get me started with Rome. They can't stand against us. Why? Because we finally have our true king. This is exactly what is going on in Peter's mind. So I want to invite you to put yourself in his shoes and imagine. You hear the call to follow this leader that you have in your mind. And you're called to leave everything behind. Your spouse, your family, your friends, your education, career, you name it. You're called to leave everything behind, to follow Christ. But then you hear Jesus say in verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. That he must be rejected. It's not optional, get this, He's using strong language here. It's a must. It's not optional. And that the Son of Man must be killed. For Peter, this is interesting because Jesus then says, must be killed and after three days, rise again. But Peter completely ignores that. Peter's mind got stuck in the suffering part, in the rejection, in the be killed. You want to know why? Because he understood that if he was following this king, if the king was going to suffer, he was going to suffer. If the king was going to be rejected, he was going to be rejected. If Jesus was going to be killed, he was going to be killed. Peter understood this. He knew this. So in the story, this is why we get to see now Peter 
that he decides to rebuke Jesus. Because Peter can't comprehend this. This is totally shocking to him because never in Israel was it heard that the Messiah would uh, suffer. It, which is interesting because they had the Old Testament. They had the book of Isaiah. But they never put that together. They always saw Jesus as this mighty warrior, this king from the line of David. Right? This mighty warrior. Political leader. But never took a look at Isaiah in the suffering servant. So, because Peter was expecting something different, he couldn't get his mind around this. You see, Peter wanted the kingdom, but he didn't want the cross. Let me put a pause there. Can you relate? Because I can tell you, I definitely can. If I'm honest with you, I operate like that. I want the kingdom I just don't want the cross. I want to avoid it. Well, we're going to get to see what Jesus has to say about this. So after Peter rebukes Jesus, then Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. I don't know about you, but if I was Peter in that moment, I would be like, whoa, like the Christ called me Satan. What is happening here, right? Well, this is because Jesus points out that Peter, well, number one, Jesus is trying to shock Peter. Like, be in shock, man. Get behind me, Satan. But also, Jesus is pointing out that Peter is using this satanic language. If we go back to Mark chapter 1, when we talked about um, the spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness, where Satan was going to tempt Jesus um, in the synoptic gospel of Matthew, it gives us a little more details um, as to what was happening there. It says this, again, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all this I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Does that sound familiar? Get behind me, Satan. Be gone. This is not the first time that Jesus hears this, right? Satan already tempted Jesus by promising the kingdom without the suffering, without the cross. This is exactly what Peter is saying here. So if we pay attention to the story, we're going to get to see then how Jesus gives this profound explanation that we simply cannot miss. We need to get it right because this is what he says. But turning and seeing his disciples, this is verse 33, He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Ready? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And this takes me to my first point. So if you're taking notes by any chance, here it is. The things of men are not the same things as the things of God. That's simple. There's a big difference between our ways and God's ways, our thoughts and God's thoughts. Isaiah 55 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways are my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
How many times have you been in the position where even though you plan everything with careful consideration, your plans still fail? Or have you ever been in a situation where you made a decision, you made a commitment to do something because you were expecting a certain outcome, but you didn't get that? In fact, it was something very different that you got. Let me share a story with you. Two Sundays ago, I came to church with a very heavy heart. I was going through a season where I was letting my emotions take over and my emotions were starting to dictate my actions. And on the night of New Year's Eve, um, my wife and I, we were going through some tension. There was some miscommunication, so there was tension between her and I. And I had told her that on Sunday, so that was Saturday, that on Sunday I was going to come to church and I was going to talk to Pastor Mike and I was going to tell him that my time here was over that I was going to step down from leading worship, that I was going to step down from my residency, that it was time for me to call it. I was ready to give up because I, my expectations of ministry, my expectations of marriage were very different than I thought. I wasn't getting what I thought I was going to get. I was letting my emotions rule over my actions. So I came into church, and I, uh, I was determined to talk to Pastor Mike, and something uh, compelled me to instead talk to Brother Ken, who I see as a mentor. And after church, we talked, and I shared my heart, my struggles. I shared why I was feeling the way that I was feeling towards my wife, towards ministry, towards myself. Um... And he gave me an advice, and he said that it wasn't the right time to make decisions because my emotions were so high. But because my emotions were so high, I had already built up a wall inside me. So I listened to his advice, and I said, that was great, but that's not what I'm going to do. I've made up my mind, <laughs> right? So then I walk out from the office in front from talking with Ken, and I'm looking for Mike. And I see that Mike is talking to other people, and I'm like, ah, not the right time. Okay. So I go home, and I have all these emotions um, and this bitterness in my heart. So I go home, and I go into my little space, my office, to do some work. And after a while, my wife comes into the room, and she asks me to go to the living room. And I don't understand. There's tension, and when she walks away from the office, I am ready to fight. Like, my heart is like, let's do this. And my wife is not confrontational at all. So I was like, oh, yeah, we're doing this, right? So as I'm walking to the living room, I'm building up this wall. In my head, I'm preparing to have this, 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 this conversation more of a fight. And out of nowhere, I, I begin to hear this music in the background which is the song that my wife and I chose to walk down the aisle to when we got married. And in my head, I, I'm just confused. I don't know what is happening. 
I don't understand. Why is there music when I'm about to fight? Right? <laughs> so then I walk to the living room and I look down and I see, I see a bowl with a towel next to it. A bowl with water and a towel next to it. <laughs> and my wife just looks at me and she says, can you have a seat? I can't make sense of what is happening at the moment. I don't understand what is going on. So I sit down and I'm, I'm listening to the music in the background. I open my eyes and I see my wife on her knees next to the bowl with water and the towel. And she's asking me to take off my shoes because she wants to wash my feet. I just became undone. All my feelings, my emotions, I was ready to fight because I couldn't bear the weight of expectations of what I thought ministry should have been like, of what marriage should be like. And I became undone. I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with it because I didn't know what to do with that. So fast forward to Saturday. That was Sunday. Next Saturday. Part of my residency is that I have to, that I get to meet, my wife and I get to meet with Pastor Mike and Jamie, because we get trained, because we're a couple trying to do ministry together. And so when we're meeting, I begin to tell this story to them, and it hits me. This passage is for me. Why? Because I was setting my, minds, uh, my mind on the things of men, not the things of God. You see, just like Peter he had his mind stuck in the imminent suffering, the hardship, because of his expectations. That is exactly what was happening to me. And friends, I was missing the beauty of redemption. I was missing the power in life and resurrection. That's exactly what Peter was missing, right? He heard the suffering, the rejection, the be killed, but he forgot the after three days I would rise again. And that's where I was. You see, we do this all the time. We think we know better. We think that our ways are better. This is why Jesus, when he rebukes, or Peter, when he rebukes Jesus, he says, this shall never be. This cannot be. Never. So, can you recognize this in you this morning? Are you able to see this when you are confronted with the reality of your expectations and they're not met? I mean, just think about it. Do we spend more time and energy planning things rather than praying on our knees? Can you relate to that? I, I can. I can. Like I said, I was preparing for this sermon, and I was like, this is exactly what I needed. This is for me. I'm taking it. You see, we, our culture has shaped us to focus so much on things like finances or career, education, even family. And I'm not saying that these things are bad, but they become bad when we idolize these things. Why? Because our sight begins to, be, to get blurry and we can no longer identify the things that come from God, the things of God. We focus so much on the things of men. And you know why this happens? I think that it happens because we, just like Peter, we focus so much on ourselves. We make everything about us And we don't see what God is doing. 
And this is precisely what Jesus does in, in, in this passage in verse 34. He basically says, hey, do you think that you know my ways? Well, you better think again. Jesus begins to open the eyes of the crowd as he summons the crowd, the crowd and he uh, calls the disciples. He begins to describe what, uh, and I love this, this term, cruciform, what a life shaped by the cross looks like, what their lives should look like if they truly want to follow him, Christ. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In the original Greek, if you take a look at it, um, it breaks it down pretty simple. It, it says, if you desire, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and do it. Follow and this takes me to my second point, the cost of discipleship. If Christ is calling us to follow him, he's calling us to be disciples of him. And to follow Christ is costly. Jesus is truly inviting the crowd and, his, and the disciples to follow him, but he's making a very important point. And if we have a wrong view of what Jesus is doing, then we will also have a wrong view of what he's calling us to do, discipleship. We won't know what it means to follow Christ. And you know, I, as I was preparing for this sermon, I, I realized something. Um, our culture has distorted the symbol of the cross. This is what I mean. So I, uh, back in the day, I used to play soccer and that's how I got through college. And because of that, I was able to meet a lot of people, a lot of soccer players. And uh, I began to know them a little more and became friends with many of them. And because we graduated, we lost to uh, touch. We stopped talking because they moved. But because the World Cup happened recently, I mean, it was a time to catch up, right? Like, oh, did you see friends play? Da, da, da. And I'm still sour that Argentina won, by the way, but that is irrelevant. And so I get to catch up with my friends, and I get to actually um, talk with one of my friends that is still trying to become a professional player. And he's telling me, like, dude, you have no idea how much better I am now than I was before. I am so much more fit. I train so much harder. I'm going to make it. I'm sure these are the sacrifices that I'm making. I'm, I'm sacrificing time with my family because all I do is work. And I'm, my diet is super clean, so I eat clean. And I train like there's no tomorrow because I really want to make it. I want to be a professional athlete and get this, then he says. And, and I was... The reason why I remember this is because I was preparing for the sermon, and I was like, oh, that conversation came to mind. After he is done explaining all the things that he's doing to become a professional athlete, he says, yeah, that, I guess that's my cross to bear. I said, uh-oh. <laughs> Isn't it crazy how our culture has changed the meaning of bearing your cross? James Edwards has a commentary on Mark, and he says this. 
Modern culture is exposed to the symbol of the cross primarily in jewelry or figures of speech. For example, bearing a cross as putting up with an inconvenience or hardship. How vastly different was the symbol of the cross in the first century? An image of repugnance. The cross was an instrument of cruelty, of pain, dehumanization, and shame. Not to train heart, eat clean, sleep well, and try to become a pro, right? It's very different. You see, the image of the cross should symbolize our allegiance to Christ. The image of the cross should symbolize our allegiance to Christ, not just simply to embrace hardship. In verse 35, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. Well, let me ask you this. What do you think he means by that? Right, like Jesus likes to, talk, to teach in parables, and for some it was confusing, for others it was clear. What do you think he means when he says this? To help us understand this clearly, we have to look at the text carefully, because Mark here is using a, a different word that you would expect when you read it in the Greek. Normally, the word for life would be zoe, but in this case, he's actually using a different word, which is psyche, which is what we get psychology from, Right? So it has, this word has a different emphasis because it emphasizes uh, personhood. It emphasizes your identity, your personality, your uniqueness. So when Jesus tells us for whoever would lose or for whoever would save his psyche, his life, will lose it. You know, I, I believe this is just my opinion. I believe that uh, what Jesus is, is saying is something like this. Don't find yourself looking for the things of the world. Like, don't, don't build your identity, your personhood, what makes you you. Don't build that up to gain the world. Why? Because you will lose the most valuable thing that you have, which is your soul. This is why Jesus, verse 37, uh, he says this, For what can a man give in return for his soul? Your soul is more valuable than the whole world. If we focus so much on ourselves, Jesus is saying, then you're actually going to lose yourself. And if you want to find your personhood, your identity, what makes you you to be your true self, he says, you have to follow me. There is no other way. And to follow Christ is not an easy task. There's a reason why Jesus say that we must carry our cross for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. So now the question is, okay, well, you're telling me I have to pick up my cross. What does that look like? How do I do that? Where do I begin? Um, I really like Tim Keller. <laughs> um, I think he's a very wise man, and I've learned much from his teachings. He, has, uh, he, he said this about this question, that taking up your cross means for you to die to self-determination, die to control of your own life, die to using him for your own agenda. If you were here with us last week, you, I hope you remember uh, Pastor Mike uh, preach on community. And he gave us the invitation to step up as a church to open up our homes. Right To share a meal, show hospitality, to share resources, finances, just to share our lives. Which, pause, by the way, 
This is why I think you should get, uh, join one of our community groups. So if you want any more information, talk to Pastor Mike about it. So if you remember, Pastor Mike shared this uh, photo where he basically invited us to consider what, what would it look like for us to open up our house to coworkers and have a meal with them, have a barbecue maybe, to invite friends over and do life together, your neighbors, right? Maybe foster parenting or family or students. We have a couple, I can see a couple of college students here. What would it look like for us to open up our homes to uh, have them over, share a meal, build uh, life with them? Right? Like, these are just very practical steps that we can uh, do. This is a way that we can show what it looks like to live a life that is shaped by the cross. And this is just one of many ways. So, in, in scripture, there's actually a series of passages that I like to call the one anotherings. Um, you'll, you'll see this a lot in scripture. So, I'm going to read a couple. Bear with me here. Love one another. If we walk according to the cross, this should come by nature, naturally. So I'm going to read it for us. Love one another, honor one another, greet one another, welcome one another, show hospitality to one another, have fellowship with one another, agree with one another, live in harmony with one another, be at peace with one another, be kind to one another, forgive one another, another, bear with one another, bear one another's burdens. Comfort one another, care for one another, confess sins to one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, build up one another, exhort one another, instruct one another, steer up one another to love and good works, serve to one another. These are practical steps. I know that a lot of times we hear sermons and it's like, great, I got it. What do I do now? Here it is, right? Walk into the one anotherings. All of these things are a way for us to pick up our cross. A way, not the only way. A way to pick up a cross and follow Christ. To follow after his example. And these passages point to us uh, what the things of God look like. You see, when we do these things, we get to step into a space where we can boldly display the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in us. This is how we show the the way of the kingdom is, must be, the cross. There is no other way. The way of the kingdom is the cross. You cannot get kingdom without the cross. I am not a, a fan of Star Wars, but my wife is. And so if she wants to watch Star Wars, then... Sometimes I can watch Star Wars with her. <laughs> so, there's this show, uh, The Mandalorian. Have you guys seen it? Right? I, out of everything Star Wars related, I'm like, yeah, I could watch this. Like, I like this. It's the only show. And The Mandalorian in the show, he has a very catchy phrase that he goes by all the time. And he goes, Aha, I knew it. <laughs> okay. This is the way, right? Why do you think he says that? Simple. Because for a Mandalorian, there's no other way, right? This is the way. Well, friends, for a follower of Christ, 
This is the way. The cross is the way. There is no other way. So, I know I'm taking a lot of your time, but I'm going to try to move forward. Um, The last point that I have for you. The reward of the cross. Jesus knows. Jesus knows that to carry the cross is not an easy task. So he gives comfort to those who are willing to step up to the plate. In, verse, in chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's not miss this. Because the promise of those who carry the cross is that they will see the kingdom. Again, the way of the kingdom is the cross. And you know who I believe understand or, or understood this Clearly, like, like no one else, the Apostle Paul. Paul understands why we are called to carry our cross. And his response is this in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by this faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. For me, Paul understood this radical call to live for the things of God, to seek the kingdom, not only that, but to bear the cross. He understood that there was no other way. I'm going to read more scripture because I think this is just, it just ties everything together here. Uh, Paul, when he writes the letter to the uh, Philippians, he says in, in chapter 3, 7, he says this. He understood the call to follow Christ, to deny himself, to experience rejection, to experience all kinds of things for the sake of following Christ. That nothing else mattered other than Christ. And he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. What? How does that make sense? Apart from the cross. He says this, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I want to clarify something to you this morning, and I hope you're not hearing this from me. We're not called to carry the cross in order to get into the kingdom, to earn the kingdom. This is not the gospel. The good news of the gospel doesn't come by your efforts or by works. It is because Christ, because of who he is and what he has done, that we are now part of the kingdom. And if you are already part of the kingdom, then the way that you will do life and live life and what your life will look like will be shaped by the cross. Again, my Mandalorian friend, there is no other way. 
This is the way. This is what Jesus is showing us. And yes, taking up your cross is a very hard task. But you know what gives me great comfort? I mean, if the story just stopped there with take up your cross and follow me. Are you kidding me? I can never do that. I mean, let's be honest. I could never do that. So here's what gives us comfort. Not only is Jesus asking us to pick up our cross, but he picked up the cross for us. We're not called to just pick up our cross. We can see and look at the cross where Jesus did that for us. You know, it is he, the one who lived a perfect life for you and me. It is him, the one who picked up that cross and carried it and experienced the shame and the guilt. He who knew no sin became sin for us. It is him who went to the cross and was bitten and he suffered and he was killed and died. A death that you and I deserve, that we should have been in his place, but he took our place. He experienced the complete wrath of God. He experienced separation from the Father a relationship that he had perfectly, perfect community with the Father for eternity past. So yeah, not only is Jesus calling us to bear our cross, he actually carried that cross for us. Friends, if that is not good news, then I don't know what is. Once we get to see that the Son of God loves us in this way. It is impossible, friends. Once you get to see how the Son of God loves us, that he went to the cross, it is impossible not to pick up your cross and follow him. There is no other way. You want the kingdom? The way of the kingdom is the cross. So I just want to encourage you with this. Let's take up our cross that we may share in Christ's suffering, knowing that he will return in glory to finally and fully and forever make all things right. And as we wait for him to return, we as a church have an opportunity to be reminded of what Christ has done. Every week that we gather here at Redemption City, we extend the invitation to come to the table and participate in the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.23 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This meal is for those who have repented and professed faith in the person and finished work of Christ. And if you're here today, and this is all new to you, you don't know what we're talking about. I just want to say I'm glad that you are here, but this meal is not for you. This is just an opportunity for you to consider who Christ is, to consider the, call, the, the, the question of, are you willing to follow Christ? It's an opportunity for you to consider what he has done for us. So here at Redemption City, what we do is we come forward and we break the bread. We dip it in the wine. Or if you prefer, we have cups to the sides, communion cups that you can take. And this is how we participate in the Lord's Supper. So pray with me.